So this morning we're asking a question I think everybody in time wants to know, and that's who's in charge of all this. Who's in charge of this world? Who's in charge of our lives? Who's in charge of this election? Who's in charge of America? Who's in charge of your family? Who's in charge of you and your future today? And I love that we have the answer today. We are in the right place today because we have the answer the world is looking for today. Lord, we love you. We are so grateful to be in your house today. We love being reminded today through the worship and through Uh, the hosting and through the giving today that you are a great and awesome God alive in every inch of earth today accomplishing the things that are in your heart. I know that you have your eye on our nation today and I know that you have your eye on each one of us today and I know that you love every person in this building today. So would you open our hearts to be able to Allow them to beat with your heartbeat today. Would you allow us to breathe your air today and to see what you see? We need the hope that that will bring to our lives for our sakes now, for our children, our children's children. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So the series is called Who is Jesus? Some amazing uh, messages we've had so far just answering the question, who is Jesus? And today the framework around our question is, is he a king or is he a pawn? You know, chess is an amazing game. I don't know if there are any chess players in the house, but it requires a lot of patience and a lot of brain power to play chess, and you've got to really think it through. There's a young man I discovered recently named Magnus Carlsen, who at 13 years of age became the youngest grandmaster in the history of chess. Imagine being 13-year-old and being able to play chess on the level of anybody else on planet Earth. He was ranked number one in 2010 when he was 19 years old. Magnus Carlsen said it's possible, this was for him, to calculate 15 to 20 moves ahead. Now, if you've ever played chess before, you're, you're, you're thinking four moves ahead, maybe, But then you realize when you make the very first one of the four moves that you didn't think enough about all four moves. He can possibly calculate 15 to 20 moves ahead. But this was the part of the statement that really, really got me thinking. He said, but the trick is in evaluating the position at the end of those calculations. So in his mind, Anyone that puts forth the energy can calculate out what the potential moves are. He said for him, the trick was in evaluating what position is left on the board at the end of 15 or 20 moves. And I thought, wow, you know, if we could allow God to help us think today beyond the next move, there's going to be peace and hope come into our lives because we are next move people. A situation comes into our world, what's my next move? Phone call comes, what's my next move? We get news that we weren't expecting, what's my next move? Somebody moves in a way that we didn't expect them to move, what's my next move? And we are a generation of next move people, and God is a God of all the moves, and so for us to align our lives with him, it roots us in hope, and it roots us in peace. The goal of chess, if you're not a chess player, is to put the king under duress. You attack the king. 
You eliminate all the barriers to the king, and then you put the king in an arresting position. And when you do that, you are able to say, and you may say it depending on your personality, a very calm, nondescript check. Or you may be a more blusterous check player, and you may pound the table and say, check. I don't know how you play life, but when you get the king in an arresting position, you can then announce the king is now in check. And when the king cannot move anymore and is defenseless, any move he would make would lead to the king's capture, then you can say the final words of chess. Checkmate. Game over. Let's get a pizza. This one's done. (laughs) And in chess and in life, there's a big picture going on. And the question I really want us to think about for a few minutes today is not who's moving the pieces on the chessboard, but who's moving the pieces of history today? Who's moving the pieces of our nation today? And more specifically, with this election, who is pulling the levers? And who's deciding the outcome of this election? We've had the craziest pre-election cycle that I can remember. I haven't been around forever, but man, has it been crazy. And we've had a lot of suggestions from both sides as to who is pulling the levers and controlling the shots and moving the pieces and deciding the outcome of this election. We hear the regular suspects. The media is in charge of the election and the media is gonna decide the outcome of this election. There are conspiracy theories going every direction right now. Uh, Some have asserted, even in the presidential debates, that foreign powers are influencing and deciding the outcome of this election. And then there was Bernie Sanders, and he said the billionaires are in charge of it, and it's a rigged system. And that has been repeated in the weeks following. Some people say, well, it's the power of the political parties that are determining the outcomes of the election. People have offered all kind of crazy ideas. Most recently, there are extremist groups that are influencing this election. They have somehow their hand on the lever of the election. So the question today is, who's moving the pieces of history? And to get at that, we have to come back to our question, which is, who is Jesus? Is he even in the mix in this election. And I have just a few major headlines for us today. And the first one is this, in terms of is Jesus a king or a pawn and who's moving all the pieces of history? The first headline for us today is this. Let's remember today that it is God who raises up people of power to accomplish his purposes in time and in eternity. If you would look with me at Isaiah 46, it's an incredibly powerful description of the sovereignty of God in the world and in all the ages. The whole chapter is amazing. The chapter is about the power of Babylon, the great power of the ancient kingdom of Babylon. But then down to verse Eight, it says this, remember this, fix it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
I, ha, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. We'll learn later that this was another ruler, not a flying animal with wings and a little beak. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From far off, a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God, over all the ages, has raised up people of power to accomplish his purposes in time and in eternity. And to get a beautiful picture of this, let's just dial back a few thousand years to the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was an important city in its day and is an important city in our day today. It was in the midst of a region called Judea, which 2,000 years ago was under the rule of the Roman Empire. So Caesar had ultimate control over the affairs and the events in Jerusalem. But in the city of Jerusalem was a different tapestry. And because of the Jewish history of the city, the Jewish leaders, namely the chief priests, had some measure of control and authority of the affairs in the city of Jerusalem. So if you lived in Jerusalem, there was a lot of power over your head. And as we dial back 2,000 years into the city of Jerusalem, I wanna see if we can yes and amen the headline that God raises up people of power to accomplish his purposes in time and in eternity. And answer the question in our subtext today, is Jesus a pawn or is Jesus a king? Are we controlling Jesus or is Jesus controlling us? And this is what we discover as we arrive in Jerusalem a little over 2,000 years ago. I don't want to be trite today in any way, but I want to make sure we remember that there was a day that Jesus Christ came before the political and the religious power of the day. And in that moment, we discover a lot about who's really running the show. And we're going to need to know that. We need to know that today for our lives. We need to know that in the days ahead for our country and for our future. When we arrive in Jerusalem, a few things happen. I'm going to give us a timeline in John 18. We probably won't put all these texts up because I'm just going to bullet point a little bit because I'm assuming you know that Jesus Christ was um, arrested, tried, and crucified for the sins of the world. That's history. And we get it in all the gospel accounts, eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. But in John 18, we see a fairly detailed description of what happened in that moment. And I want to just take us there just for a moment so we can understand. On the day that Jesus died, was he a pawn or was he a king? When you go to John 18, the first few verses, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, sold out the Son of God, and then arrested. Who arrested Jesus? The Romans didn't arrest him. The soldiers of the inside power of the day, which was the Jewish Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, they had their own guards in the city. And their guards, the guards of the chief priests, the religious leaders' guards, arrested Jesus 
as he was betrayed with a kiss on the cheek by Judas, they came and seized him. Peter thought, you know, we're going to fight right here and right now. He pulled out his sword. He took dead aim at one of these soldiers. Soldier either, you know, dodged quickly or he, he wasn't as, uh, as precise in his aim as he wanted to be or it was dark and things were, you know, moving fast. But the guy dodges, his ear is cut off and Peter's ready to start a war right then and there. And Jesus, of course, you know, takes the guy's ear while he's being arrested and puts it back on his head. This is where, if you're the soldiers arresting Jesus, you get it right then and right there. And you say, you know what? They sent us here to arrest you, but I guess what? Why don't you just tell us what do you want to do right now? Because we've never really arrested a guy before who picked up a guy's ear and put it back on his head. <laughs> so they took Jesus pretty quickly to Annas, who wasn't the high priest at the time, but he was the father-in-law of the high priest, so you see how it works, and a lot of you who are married still understand how it works even today. And so they took him immediately to Annas, and Annas questioned him. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, questioned him, and eventually Jesus lands before Caiaphas, who was the Jewish chief priest at this time. So we just have a little bit of a visual to help us understand. So Jesus here is in the midst of a lot of power. And so immediately Caiaphas, the high priest who has a lot of decision-making authority over what's gonna happen to Jesus is in conversation with him. Annas was first stop. Annas was one of the priests, but now Caiaphas really is going to be the one who makes the final decision, even though, you know, Annas has got some say in the matter because of his position in time as well. But Jesus is caught in between inside power. I don't know if you've ever been caught in the middle of inside power before, but it's a really treacherous road to walk on. And Jesus now is under fire. They're asking him primarily are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? So they're asking the question we're asking. So we're on board with what's been asked by people on all sides of the life of Jesus for a long, long time. Who is Jesus? And they're asking him now. They've arrested him in the garden. They've beaten him. They've mocked him. He's under the guard of the high priest. And a lot of bad things can happen in this moment. And now they're inquiring of him, trying to trip him up, trying to trump up charges against him. Other gospel writers make this super clear. They're trying to bring false witnesses against him. They're trying to bring up any charge they can to put him to death, which is their ultimate goal. They want to silence this man named Jesus. And so they ask him, are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? And Jesus answers them, in a way that enrages them. And so they decide, here's our move. We need to get outside power now to join up with our inside power. We've got our control and rule against Jesus, but we need Rome's control and rule against Jesus because we wanna get them to be the ones who actually terminate his life. And so as you read on in John 18, Jesus is taken now from Caiaphas to Pilate. You can read this, we'll read it together in verse 31. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. In other words, Pilate didn't really want to get involved. Rome didn't want to get involved. Outside power didn't want to get involved with inside power. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. 
This happened so that the words that Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Now, that's a whole other message for a whole other day, but all the prophecies that had been foretold about Jesus over centuries all spoke of a death by crucifixion, and the Jews couldn't crucify someone, so there needed to be a Roman rule and a Roman emperor and a Roman government and a form of execution called crucifixion for all the prophecies of Jesus to come true. That's another message for another day about the sovereign plans of God. But verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, and he summoned Jesus, and he asked him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And then Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, which they they did, but I stopped that. I told them, don't do that. That's not the plan. But now, listen to Jesus, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. Now at this point, Jesus is in the middle of inside power, but he's also in the middle of outside power. So Pilate, who's the governor of Judea, and who has got the rule and reign in Jerusalem, has got all kinds of power to do anything he wants to do because he's backstopped by Tiberius, who is the Caesar, the emperor over Rome. And so Tiberius has given Roman empire power to Pilate, who now has absolute decision-making authority over what happens to Jesus. If you read all of the gospel accounts, there was a moment where um, Jesus was offloaded to Herod. You might read that in the story, Herod Agrippa, who was the tetrarch of Galilee because Pilate didn't want to get involved. I know a lot of history today, and a lot of you just glaze over that. We'll come back to the main point in a minute. The history people in here are going, tell us more. Pilate didn't want to get involved. Tiberius, as far as we know, probably didn't know a lot about what was happening on this particular day. But his power is resting on Pilate, who doesn't really want to get involved. But the inside power is relentless, and they won't let him off the hook. So he tries to get off the hook by saying, this guy's from Galilee. Let's send him to Herod. Herod is the tetrarch in Galilee, we'll let Herod speak into it. Herod meets with Jesus. He says, I don't see any reason why we should crucify him. Pilate doesn't see any reason why we should crucify him. Tiberius, he's not even sure he's making a decision today, but the inside power is relentless. And in a moment, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the Son of God, is in the midst of a web of power. And everyone in that moment, every single person in that moment is asking the same question. Are you a king? Are you a king? And then the outsiders are saying, or is he a pawn? I thought he was going to be a great ruler. I thought he was going to bring the kingdom of God. I thought he was the one that we were waiting for, the promised one. But look, now it looks like he's just a pawn in the hands of power. And as this story unfolds, And as Jesus does affirm, I am a king, 
At the end of the day, the inside power has its way with the outside power. And Pilate finally relents in the end, and he says, take him away to his Roman guards and crucify him. And interestingly, it says in verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, and there they crucified him. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic. That was the common language of the Jews in Jesus' day. In Latin and in Greek. And the chief priests who had already gotten Jesus crucified didn't like the sign and they were just fighting to the very end and they protested to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And Jesus breathed out his last and he died. Railroaded by inside power, now condoned and blessed by outside power, Jesus Christ breathed one last breath and he died. I want us to see this because I don't want any of us to spin out of control in this election season. I want us to remember there was a day when the Son of God was killed by the authorities of the day. And if you look across the landscape of history, that's the day that stands out and you go, it can't get worse than that. It cannot get worse than that. I cannot imagine a scenario worse than God and human flesh being tag teamed by inside and outside power and crushed to death on a Roman cross. But when it happened, we're asking the question today, was he a king or was he a pawn? And we're putting all that under a headline today that God raises up people of power to accomplish his purposes in time and in eternity. So before uh, we move too far along, let's answer question number one. Was Jesus a king or a pawn? Well, fortunately, we have history to help us with the answer today. And we go, wow, you know, it's pretty clear today that Jesus wasn't the pawn, but that all these people were the pawns on that day. In fact, Jesus was the king on that day, and everybody else was a role player in the purposes and the plans of God. In Acts chapter 2, as the resurrection has happened and the gospel is starting to move forward, we looked at this verse in the series that we did a few weeks ago, but just to bring us back to it again, Acts chapter 2, um, beautifully written um, and a powerful sort of wrap up of everything that we need to understand in verse 23. And I'll back up to verse 22. The, the sermon came out this way. Men of Israel, <laughs> uh, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which, you, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set 
purpose, and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so the story has flipped pretty quickly to you guys, with the help of these guys, put him to death. But guess what? The whole time, it was God's set purpose that was unfolding that day, and God needed inside power to railroad the Son of God, and he needed outside power to crucify him so that then he could be raised from the dead by the power of God on the third day to explode into life a church that is triumphant in the world even to this day. And 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, the only thing we know, and I don't mean this to be, uh, I'm not trying to be uh, cheeky as the uh, someone in the UK would say, or, or ticky-tacky, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for. I'm not trying to be, uh, to, to, to gloat when I say this, and I'm not trying to be trite. But the only reason people talk about Caiaphas is because of this man. Not, the only reason you know him because he's in Jesus movies. That's the only reason you know him. Your Jewish friends don't even talk about Caiaphas. No one talks about Caiaphas and no one talks about Annas unless it's in a Jesus movie. And they are bit players in a Jesus movie in which Jesus stars and steals the show. The only reason that most people know anything about Tiberius is because he's in a Jesus story in the Bible. And he's mentioned multiple times in the Gospels, and therefore people know there was a Caesar named Tiberius, but most people don't know him. They know Julius Caesar, and they know some of the other Caesars of Rome, but a lot of people don't roll around saying, man, let me just tell you what I learned today about Tiberius. You know why? Because this guy was jacked up. And nobody knows anything about Pilate, except that he's the one who says, what is truth <laughs> when confronted by Jesus that all those who listen to me are on the side of truth? And here we are all these years later and you know, you just read history. The Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, done. Thank you, Roman Empire. Footnote of history now. Tiberius died in AD 37, Herod in 39 AD, Pilate in 36 AD. And we're here worshiping Jesus today, a living savior of the world. So can I take a, a little sideline and come back around because we, most of us know this story. I wanna, I wanna just go back a little further, 600 plus more years to 603 BC because I, I wanna bring us back to Isaiah 46, that ruler that bird of prey that God brought out of the east to accomplish his will. When you go to Daniel in the Old Testament, there's an amazing story there. Daniel chapter 2, won't get into all the detail of it today, but uh, the Babylonians took down Jerusalem. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who you can read about in history, he's a real person, um, he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Most of you have been there. And um, so it's it, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It, he's a real guy, Nebuchadnezzar. 
He did some amazing things in, in history. But Nebuchadnezzar took the people, the best of the people of Jerusalem captive in Babylon. And we see this in the history of God's people. Uh, they will call out to him in mercy and he will relent. They will walk away from him in pride and he will break them and put them in bondage until again they cry out for mercy and then he relents. This is the history of the people of God. And frankly, it's my history and it's your history. We cry out for mercy and God moves in power. We walk in pride and we end up again in bondage. <laughs> and then we cry out for mercy and God relents in power. And this is how humanity chooses to do life apart from the spirit of God who leads us to a different way of life. And so some of the best of God's people are in bondage in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream. You, you may remember the story. He, it keeps him up all night. So he apparently was up at night with the rest of us. The dream was so troubling to him. So he called in all of his um, the wisest men among whom were some of these young men that had come from Jerusalem, namely Daniel, and three of his friends as well that you may know in the story, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. And so Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, Daniel are some of the best and the brightest of God's chosen people of Jerusalem who are now in bondage in Babylon. But he, he calls out to all the wise men, of his kingdom, and he says, I'm up at night with a very troubling dream, and I want you to tell me the dream and interpret the dream. And man, people freaked out because he said, if you don't do this, I'm gonna, um, you know, I'm gonna cut you into pieces and burn your houses to the ground. And so people felt a sense of pressure to get it right. And so they tried to stall for time because it wasn't just interpret the dream. You know, anyone can do that. I had a dream and I saw this and I saw that and I felt this and the other. Oh, I think that that is your mother-in-law from, you know, six years ago and that is a man's coming in a Buick, you know, tomorrow. And, and, and somehow it's easier to interpret once the dream's laid out. But he said, no, tell me the dream so I'll know that you know the dream I'm having and then interpret the dream. And they were like, oh, okay, don't want to be cut to pieces. Don't want my house and my family all burned to the ground. So let Let's ask for more time. And finally, he came to the end. He was done. He said, okay, I'm done with all of you. Take them all out. And that was going to include Daniel. So as you know in the story, Daniel appealed for a little extra time. He went home to his boys, and he said to Hananiah, to Mishael, to Azariah, will you pray that God will have favor on me because I need an answer from God tonight or else we're all wiped out. God speaks to Daniel. He has favor on Daniel. He gives him the dream and the interpretation, and Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar and says, I got your dream and I got your interpretation. He says in verse 27 of chapter um, 2 in Daniel, he says to him, uh, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Isn't that a good opening, right? So he's already saying, um, I recognize you're King Nebuchadnezzar, but I also recognize there's someone above you who can only do what you've asked to be done. So he says in verse 31, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. This is why he was staying up at night, an enormous 
dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. I'm just gonna read quickly. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power. This is our first headline. And might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, wherever they live, and he's made you a ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay. And he goes on down and he says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven, verse 44, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. What was Daniel seeing? He was seeing a kingdom on top of a kingdom, on top of a kingdom, on top of a kingdom. And he was seeing Nebuchadnezzar and all of his power and all of his glory given by God, his rule and might given by God. And then he was seeing a rock hewn by the hands of Almighty God, maybe a chief cornerstone, a tried and tested stone, a true stone for a sure foundation. He said that rock in that kingdom will break every kingdom that there is. Nebuchadnezzar fell down. He put him in a high position. He said to him, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you, you were able to reveal the mystery. Man, it was so amazing. Nebuchadnezzar was so close. <laughs> Boy, you, you, your God must be God because you revealed to me the mystery. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that the rock that the builders rejected was about to be the only sure foundation for the ages and the epochs to come, and that his kingdom was on a fast track to nowhere. His rule and power had been given by God to accomplish God's purposes in God's time, and that's simply the way it worked. So in Isaiah 46, I know if you're into history, you know, amen, praise God, you're on my page today. If not, hang on, we're gonna come down to the end here, and it's gonna be good. So we come back to Isaiah 46. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. Because what I've said, that will I bring about. And what I've planned, that will I do. So as you know, not too long after this time, the time that 
Daniel was interpreting this dream. The fall of Babylon happened in 539 B.C. The dream was interpreted in 603 B.C. So from 603 B.C. to 539 B.C., that was the tailspin of the rule of Babylon and the Babylonian kingdom. And a ruler named Cyrus came from Persia, and he took down all the rule in all the reign of Babylon, and then Babylon became a footnote on the timeline of history. God raises up rulers to accomplish his purposes and his plans in time and in eternity. And whatever happens in this election, God is raising up people of power to accomplish his purposes and his plans in time and in eternity. And you may, whichever side of the aisle you're on, say, God couldn't use that purpose to, that person to accomplish his plans and purposes. And if you're on the other side, you say, there's no way God can use that person to accomplish his plans and purposes. I remind you, God uses all the people of power to accomplish his plans and his purposes because he is the ruler of all. So let's come down to the end because there's something also of importance for you personally and your family today because we come pretty clearly to understand God holds history and moves the pieces of history. But who holds your destiny today? Who holds your history today? Who holds your life in his hands today. So the second headline is simply this. You are never a pawn if you belong to a king. Right. Now there are people sitting in here today, if I'm, I have to be honest, and you think you are a king, so you just need to see headline number one. But if you feel like a pawn today, let's say divorce just came barreling through the door of your heart today. And you're like, man, this election is crazy, Louis, but it's not as crazy as what's going on in my family, my marriage right now. Let's say cancers come roaring into your world right now. And you're like, man, I was all concerned about the country. Now I'm all about tomorrow. So who holds your life? Who's in charge of your future and in charge of your destiny. And I wanna remind us today that we have been connected to Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you're never a pawn in life if you belong to a king. Your times are in the hands of the King of kings. So back to Daniel, just really fast. So those housemates that prayed for him, Hananiah, uh, Mishael and Azariah, remember those three buddies that he said, will you stay up and pray all night because I got to get a word from God tonight or we're all going to get cut to pieces tomorrow? Those three buddies, one chapter later, are more known by their uh, Babylonian names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Nebuchadnezzar was clueless because the dream is revealed in chapter two. Chapter three opens with, so Nebuchadnezzar built an idol... <laughs> into the sky of gold and commanded all the people to worship that idol. So he missed out on a lot of what God was trying to clue him in on. 
And then the command went out to all the people. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, you'll bow down, you'll worship the idol. Daniel and these other three boys were like, we, we hear the trumpet, but we can't worship the idol because we're the ones who stayed up late last night and watched God do a miracle. See, you're less likely to fall prey to the whims of the world when you were up last night praying to God and seeing him do a miracle in your life or in someone else's life. And so they said, we hear the trumpet, we see the idol, we get all that, we understand that Nebuchadnezzar's got power, but we're not bowing down to any idols. We're not bowing down to this big, huge statue, this image of gold, 90 feet high and nine feet wide, set out on the plain of Dura. We're not going to be able to do that. And amazingly, I love how this story comes down. I want to read a couple of verses in chapter 3. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. So this is what we're asking today. Is Jesus pawn or king? Who's king? Who's in charge? Who's running the show? Who's calling the shots? Who's got their hand on the lever? Who makes the decisions? And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all the kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And they're thinking, the one who rescued us from your hand last night is the one who's going to rescue us from your hand. Because we prayed, we sought him, we cried out, he did a miracle, Daniel got the dream and the interpretation, and guess what? We're still here talking to you. That God. But Nebuchadnezzar missed all of that, even though it was right in front of him. He missed all of that. Amen. We miss a lot if we're not paying attention and all we do is listen to the news. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O oh king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, we all know how this story turned out. Put three people in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar saw four people walking around in there. He thought one was an angel of God. We think one was most likely Jesus himself in the fire doing what he always does, delivering us in the furnace before he gets us out of the furnace, showing his superior strength in our lives in the difficulty before he gets us out of the difficulty. We're always looking for the eject button and he's always looking for the insert moment where he can come into the equation, into the difficulty, into the challenge, into the pressure and show himself to be enough for us in the fire. And so... Nebuchadnezzar sees this. He freaks out and he, he starts yelling at them in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach. And then he says to his guys, get them out of there. And out they come. And again, he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And then he went and was crazy for a bunch of years of his life, living like a wild animal out in the fields. But God did restore him even after that so that he could then have a small part in the legacy, a little, you know, byline in the story of a kingdom called Babylon, which was all coming down in 539 BCE. And here's the point. You're not a pawn if you belong to a king. Even in a fiery furnace, you're not a pawn if you belong to a king. Under pressure, you're not a pawn. Your boss doesn't have final say over what happens to you if you belong to a king. People in your family don't have final say. Inside power doesn't have final say over you if you belong to a king. And outside power doesn't have final say over you if you belong to a king. If you belong to a king, then the king is the king and he has final say over what happens to you. So yeah, the committee may decide. The board may vote. Your boss may make a decision. Somebody may decide how many days you're gonna work in your specific job. Your family may make choices. People may make decisions. Diagnosis may come on the radar. All kind of pressure may happen. Decisions may come your way. But if you are connected to a king, you are never a pawn. And so people connected to a king don't ever say, this is unfair, this is ridiculous, these people are ruining my life, they're railroading me, everybody's you know, wrecking the plans. Nobody's wrecking God's plans. If you're submitted to him, what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They did what I hope we're gonna do in the next season in this nation. Because what they did, you can miss it by reading this story a hundred times but it's life-changing and it's a roadmap for you and me into the days ahead. They honored the king. And let's make sure as the people of God that we do what he said and we pray for those who are in authority over us. He's not Obama. He's President Obama. And when you talk about him, when I talk about him, that's how you call him. But I disagree with President Obama. Well, half of America disagrees with President Obama. Half of America disagreed with President Clinton and President Bush and President Reagan and President Eisenhower and President on and on and on. Half of a nation disagreed with President Lincoln. He's on money. (laughs) But when you disagree, you disagree with President Obama, not Obama, because he's the person God raised up and put in power to accomplish God's plans and God's purposes for our nation. He's no different than Tiberius, Pilate, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus. God raises them all up and God puts them all down. Whoever is elected, our tendency is gonna put them on our level. You say, well, no, they put themselves below our level, Louis. I know, and that's what the spirit of Christ in us does when it puts people back and it shows honor to people who have a position that God has given them. You don't like your boss. I, I, I don't know your boss, but he's still your boss. And so he's sir, she's ma'am. 
he's chairman so-and-so or president so-and-so. He's not all that idiot Bob. And this is a game changer and a distinctive for us in the world. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, he, will, he is able to save us from your hand, O king. You say, oh, they were just being sarcastic. Oh, he's able to save us from your hand, O king. No, they weren't. They were showing honor. You know why? Because if they didn't show honor, it wouldn't have mattered whether they bowed down to the statue or not. They'd have been in the fire already. There's something about honor that breathes out the air of, of people who understand there's a king of kings. And the way we honor him influences the way we honor people. Should we disagree with people we disagree with politically? Absolutely 100%. All of us in this room are voting for different people. Just look up and down the road and congratulate yourself because we're all voting for different people. That's unnerving on some level. You're like, no, 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 we all gotta be voting for the same people. We're all here worshiping the same Jesus. No, but the way we worship Jesus is gonna influence the way we honor all the people in our lives. And so what we see in these guys is they honored the king, but they wouldn't worship him. Make sure you don't worship anybody but the king of kings. Make sure that your honor doesn't cross over into worship. Well, what do you mean by that? Oh man, this is gonna be the thing. This is gonna solve the deal. This is gonna win the day. This is gonna change everything. This is gonna make my life this and that and the other. And this is gonna make the world, listen, have you seen that happen recently in the last 100 years? No, people don't have as much power as we all think they have to do all the things we all think they should do. And no matter who you voted for in the last three elections, you weren't 1,000% satisfied with everything they did, were you? No. So let's make sure we honor the people that God puts in power. But let's make sure like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we never worship anyone but God. And that we make our focus to worship the one true God at all cost, any cost, at every cost. Why? Because he's the one true God, King of all. And in the process, we will honor everybody that we can, as long as we can, wherever we can. You see what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they focused on being faithful and God focused on making them fruitful. They focused on making sure their hearts were right and God made sure the arc of their life was great. So if you don't like the power, inside or outside power in your life right now, focus on your heart. Let God be in charge of your ark. Focus on being faithful and let God decide when he wants to make you fruitful. We see it right in these guys. And then I close with this and we're gonna pray together. It's the last headline. And man, I pray that um, I get this today. So what does it mean for the world? It means that God's in charge. I've been praying a lot the last few months for Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump. 
And most often when I pray for them, I pray that they would be able to see that there is a God who is in charge. I cannot imagine the pressure that both of them are under. I cannot imagine how they must be sleeping at night. And I've been praying that they would know there is a shepherd who can lead them to green pasture by still water who can restore their soul and guide them on paths of righteousness for his namesake. And I've been praying that they would know that all this weight and this pressure was never meant to be on them, but it was always meant to rest on him. And that they would come to see and come to know that there is a great God in heaven and he raises up rulers and he puts them down. He runs history and eternity. He organizes everything to accomplish his purpose and his plans for the world. Second headline, what does it mean to you? It means you can rest assured tonight that you are not a pawn to any inside or outside power if you belong to a king. And lastly, what does it mean to us gathered today, Passion City Church and the church around the world gathered today? It means simply this, that the future of our nation may depend far more on us than it ever will on Mrs. Clinton or on Mr. Trump. The future of America may be squarely in the hands of the people of the King of Kings today. And here's the thing, here's the thing. If we will focus, if we can focus in the midst of all this, and it's a challenge. I mean, I've already voted early. A lot of us have voted early. Man, I don't know about you. Maybe you're different than me. I, this was not an easy one for me, so I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not you know, I can't get into all that because I'm a preacher and blah, blah, blah. This was not an easy one for me. It put the duty back in civic duty. So I'm, I'm in there with you, all right? But we've got to focus today. And here's what we've got to focus on. The hope of America rests with the people of God, not with the people of power. The hope of America, because we're, we're a cross-section. We're bipartisan. We got Republicans, Democrats, and Independents all looking up to one great king today. So we may be the best case picture for an organization that can bring hope to the world. We're standing on the rock of ages. We worship the King of Kings. We're filled with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. We have the word of truth at our disposal and been given spiritual gifts. We've been knit together as a body. We've been born again as brothers and sisters in one family, the family of Jesus Christ. We have our eyes open to the whole world to what we can give to the world, not what we can get from the world. We're not greedy, we're generous. We're not fearful, we're hopeful. We're not short-sighted, we're eternity-minded people. And as God's people, guess what? We need to get on our knees. We need to look up to heaven. We need to start generously investing in the work of the kingdom, sharing the gospel so that people can be saved. We need to move out in action. We need to get our marching orders from the king of the universe and say, you know what's gonna happen in the next four years in America? I'll tell you what's gonna happen in the next four years in America. The church is gonna wake up. The church 
church is going to rise up. The church is going to come out of its slumber. The church is going to move in power, in grace, in mercy, in love, led by Jesus Christ. We're coming for your world with a story of grace and love like you've never heard before. And we'll care for the broken. Can't guarantee you either party will, but we will. We'll lift up the downtrodden. I can't promise you the parties will, but I promise you God's people will. And we'll go stand on the front lines in Mosul and feed people who are fleeing for their lives. Look, you're not finding any people over there in this election doing that. That's the church people standing in the gap, and that's who we are. Headline number one, God raises up people of power to accomplish his purposes and his plans in time and in eternity, and he's going to do that again. Headline number two, you are never a pawn if you belong to a king. Headline number three, it just may be that the church will have more to do with the future of America in the next four years than either candidate will have to do with the future of America in the next four years. We serve a mighty So this morning, we just want to bow our hearts and we want to adore the King and we want to pray because He asked us to and asked that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So will you join me now if you are sitting next to a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, son, Would you just take their hand right now? If you've got a really good friend, good enough friend on the other side, you might just take theirs. If not, don't. It's just uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. You'll both feel uncomfortable. And I want us to pray right now in Jesus' name. And I want to pray a few quick things, and I want you to pray right there in your little group, just one person. These are short prayers, but I want someone to pray. If you feel comfortable praying out loud, all the better. And I want you to pray right now. I want us to pray right now and thank God that he runs history. Can we just do that just for a moment? Can we just thank God right now that he runs history? Thank you, Lord. Now, just for a moment, can we just ask God to forgive us for losing the plot and focus us on the king and the kingdom? Have mercy on your people, Lord, today, Jesus. Have mercy on your people, on us, Lord. Could we pray today that God would open the heart and the eyes of Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump to see Jesus, beautiful, unrivaled, radiant, holy, eternal, full of grace and truth. Could we ask God 
to open their eyes, to see more than what they have seen, to fully see Jesus. Lord, we humbly come to you today and acknowledge you, great King of kings. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly became the sacrifice, that you are always the King. Father, we confess to you that we haven't been as faithful and as focused as the world needs us to be in these times. And so set us apart, refine us and refuel us with hope and vision, with a distinctive character. And Father, we pray today for one of these two people who in just a few hours now will be the president-elect of our nation. And we lift Mrs. Clinton up to you in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would surround her today with people who can be reflections of you and her life. We pray that you would support her in every way, that you would be to her what really and truly you alone know that she needs you to be, that you will bring life and encouragement and truth and grace into her life today. We pray for revelation, that divine revelation that opens eyes and allows us to see. We pray for Mr. Trump today. We ask you to have mercy on him today, Lord. We pray that you would put people in his path today, even in this day, who could be a reflection to him of the goodness and greatness that is you. God, we pray that you'd open his heart and open his eyes to see that you're for him and not against him. We pray that you'd open his eyes to see and know that you love him. We pray that you'd support him in every way that you know that he needs today with encouragement, with strength, with life, with grace, with truth. We ask that you would open Mr. Trump's eyes to see you, Jesus, as you truly are. Jesus, your name, it's unrivaled in history and in eternity, and we worship that one true name today. We anchor in that one true name today, yeah.